Shakespeare's Hamlet, with me, your host, Connor Hamlety. The players have finally arrived, and Hamlet has been busy welcoming them. For a quick moment, I want to revisit a line from last week's episode. In his enthusiasm, Hamlet insists that we'll in to it like French falconers, fly at anything we see, suggesting that just as French hunting birds don't discriminate in what they attack, so Hamlet will be a very appreciative audience. The reason I bring it up again is that this week I've been reading a new book about the play by Professor Rodri Lewis called Hamlet and the Vision of Darkness. Its second chapter is an extraordinary piece of scholarship investigating images of hunting throughout the play. I don't think I've been as excited about a piece of writing for a very long time. Professor Lewis investigates the imagery of hunting and even the different class implications of different kinds of prey, from rats to foxes and different kinds of deer, and the reasons why Shakespeare has woven them all throughout this play. It's a most erudite piece of writing and an astonishing lens through which to look at the play. I have several more chapters of it to read, mind you, but since the falconers appeared in the chapter I read this morning, I wanted to mention it here. So go get yourself a copy. There's a link to it on the website, and there's hours of happy reading to be had. Meanwhile, at the end of last week's episode, we had Hamlet encouraging the players to give a speech. Any speech. Well, not quite any speech, since the prince has a very particular one in mind. He's pointed out that he remembered the play it came from, despite it not having been the company's greatest triumph, perhaps. And then he continues describing it. One speech in it I chiefly loved, it was Aeneas' tale to Dido, and thereabout of it, especially where he talks of Priam's slaughter. If it live in your memory, begin at this line. Let me see, let me see. The rugged Pyrrhus like the Hyrcanian beast. Ah, it is not so. It begins with Pyrrhus, the rugged Pyrrhus, he whose sable arms, black as his purpose, did the knight resemble when he lay couched in the ominous horse, hath now his dread and black complexion smeared with heraldry more dismal, head to foot now is he total ghouls, horridly tricked with blood of fathers, mothers, daughters, sons, baked and impasted, with the parching streets that lend a tyrannous and damned light to their lord's murder, roasted in wrath and fire and thus oversized with coagulate gore, with eyes like carbuncles, the hellish Pyrrhus old grandsire Priam seeks. I've mentioned before that Hamlet is something of a fan, and he displays all the qualities of one here, a fairly lengthy quotation from a play that he surely saw quite some time ago, I've always been fascinated at how Elizabethan audiences might have remembered performances they saw. Did they remember texts to a similar extent? Were they able to quote at length from things they'd seen? I despair sometimes when I see a show or a film and I can't remember the exact wording of a good line on the way home. And yet the consensus is that previous audiences were far more capable of recalling things after the fact. Certainly the phrase used to be that one would go and hear a play which speaks to a different kind of sensory intake. Who knows? Perhaps we're just saturated with information in a very different way nowadays. 
Hamlet's quotation is from a play about the Trojan War, specifically the sack of Troy once the Greeks had sent in the Trojan horse, or the Greek horse really, and begun their destruction. He remembers a particular section that he enjoyed, and hopes that the actors might have it near to hand in the tables of their memories. One speech in it I chiefly loved, t'was Aeneas tale to Dido, and thereabout of it especially where he speaks of Priam's slaughter. If it live in your memory, begin at this line. And then he says, let me see, let me see. But what's interesting is that Shakespeare gets a little theatrical reference in here too. The current Arden Shakespeare edition of the play has a brilliant reference here, explaining that what we get might be Shakespeare's revenge for an old insult. Hamlet begins his quotation by saying, the rugged Pyrrhus like the Hyrcanian beast. Pyrrhus was the son of Achilles, and after his father's death, he is thirsty for revenge. And obviously we have an immediate understanding of why Hamlet might be interested in this scene, since immediately its circumstances echo his own. But the description is much more interesting. Never mind that Pyrrhus is rugged. Any Greek warrior worth his salt surely was. Shakespeare likens him next to the Hyrcanian beast. For your reference, Hyrcania is a region south of the Caspian Sea in what is now Iran. It was particularly noted for its tigers, and Virgil's Aeneid, that great epic poem about the destruction of Troy, mentions these Hyrcanian tigers very memorably. So Pyrrhus is like a Hyrcanian tiger, that is, the beast in question. Normally, the reference was reserved for people from Troy, most famously, obviously, Aeneas, but here Hamlet is saying it of a Greek warrior. That's surely not right. Hamlet corrects himself. It is not so. But why would Shakespeare insert a deliberate mistake? He had referenced Hyrcania once before when he likened Queen Margaret to one of its tigers in Henry VI, so he did know it. But why is it here? Well, according to Anne Thompson and Neil Taylor in The Arden, this is perhaps Shakespeare getting back at Robert Greene. Years earlier, Greene had insulted Shakespeare in print, calling him an upstart crow, with his tiger's heart wrapped in a player's hide. Shakespeare has obviously eclipsed all of his rivals, even Christopher Marlowe, who had written his own version of the aftermath of Troy in Dido, Queen of Carthage. That play also includes a reference to Hyrcania, when Marlowe translates Virgil almost directly and says, Tigers of Hyrcania gave thee suck. I really like the notion that here, in one of the very few plays that include actors as characters, Shakespeare can't resist a little reference to tigers and players, as if to say to Robert Greene, to the university wits, and to any other critics, you were saying? Whatever the reason for Hamlet's flub and his correction, he gets back on track now as he remembers the quotation properly. The rugged Pyrrhus, he whose sable arms, black as his purpose, did the knight resemble when he lay couched in the ominous horse, hath now his dread and black complexion smeared with heraldry more dismal. The rugged Pyrrhus, he whose sable arms, black as his purpose, did the knight resemble when he lay couched in the ominous horse, hath now this dread and black complexion smeared with heraldry more dismal. Pyrrhus rode into Troy inside the treacherous or ominous horse, and since his armour was also black, he cut a very dark figure, dark as night. But now he has smeared this dread and black complexion with something even more horrible. The speech continues. Head to foot, now is he total ghouls, 
horridly tricked with blood of fathers, mothers, daughters, sons, baked and impasted with the parching streets that lend a tyrannous and damned light to their lord's murder. Ghouls is the heraldic word for red, just as sable is for black. So now Pyrrhus is red, head to toe, because he is horribly tricked with the blood of fathers, mothers, daughters, and sons that he has killed. Worse than that, the image is of Troy burning, and so all these bodies are baked and impasted, turned into pie-filling, as the streets blaze and lend a tyrannous and damned light to their lord's murder. All these people, whose blood Pyrrhus is now wearing, are burning, and the glow from this will illuminate the murder of their lord, King Priam. Pyrrhus is still on the hunt, and continues, roasted in wrath and fire, and thus oversized with coagulate gore, with eyes like carbuncles, the hellish Pyrrhus, old grandsire Priam, seeks. It's a very grim image. Coagulate gore doesn't need much further explanation. But when he says that Pyrrhus's eyes are like carbuncles, it's a reference to the gemstone rather than the medical condition. Carbuncles are red like rubies, and so Pyrrhus seems all the more terrifying, with his black armour painted with red blood and eyes that sparkle with red fire. You can see why this play might have stuck in Hamlet's memory. Having reached this particular image, Hamlet finally defers to the professional actors. Go ahead, he says. So, proceed you. Having been silent for a whole fifty lines now, Polonius chimes in again. He's actually quite impressed with Hamlet's performance. For God, my lord, well spoken, with good accent and good discretion. He says that Hamlet spoke well, with good diction and indeed good acting choices, or discretion. Between this would-be critic and Hamlet, the wannabe actor, it's always fun to watch how the players themselves react to all of this scene. There's plenty for the actors to play with here. Perhaps they mouth along as they realise which bit Hamlet means, or get frustrated at the length of his long quotation, and then Polonius's commentary indeed on top of that. Of course, we have been waiting all this time, and I'm sorry to do this, but we'll have to wait until the next episode to hear the first player speak, and indeed learn the continuation of this episode of Pyrrhus hunting for Priam in burning Troy. Do be sure to tune in next time for that, and in the meantime, there are some fun new ways for you to engage with the podcast. I've started an Instagram account, at Hamlet Podcast, and you'll find a growing series of visual references, and I hope some fun things there. The podcast is now available in Spotify, so you can tune into it there, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. I really do love hearing from you, whether on Twitter or via email, and you can, of course, find all of the pertinent information, as well as show notes and all previous episodes, on thehamletpodcast.com. As always, thank you very much for listening, and I'll speak to you next time.